All right, let me just say, before we even get into the Word, I got in trouble for offering $50 bills at the 6 o'clock Christmas Eve service, and we didn't do it. So, to make it up to you, if you'll reach under your pew right now, no, I'm just making that up. (laughs) December fool, December fool. Hey, listen, we're glad everybody's here this morning. Take your Bible and be finding Matthew chapter 2 for a few minutes today. I'm excited about this message this morning because as we conclude this biography of Bethlehem series by taking a look at what tends to be a very familiar story, though a story that's cloaked in a degree of mystery and misunderstanding, largely as we're going to see because we get much of our theology of the story Not so much from the Bible, but from misappropriated Christmas carols that we sometimes sing. The Christmas carols are lovely, but they don't always get it right, biblically. We're going to look at a prime example of that here with the story, the narrative, the account of the wise men. Interestingly, found only in the Gospel of Matthew which to me anyway is a bit ironic because Matthew, of course, is a Jew and Matthew's writing to Jewish audiences. And so it's kind of unusual that he would begin this story about the birth, the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ by drawing an account of pagan Gentiles traveling thousands of miles to get to Jesus. It would seem to me that this story would be better fitted in Luke's gospel because Luke was a Gentile. But Luke doesn't mention these men. Now, I think that that's remarkable on Matthew's part because the fact that he includes this story indicates that he gets it. He gets the gospel. He understands that Jesus has come not just for the Jews, but that our Lord Jesus has come for all people, men, women, boys, and girls, red and yellow, black and white. Our Savior died for people who all are precious in his sight. And Matthew's going to emphasize that at the very end of his gospel When, with the final words of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So at the end of his gospel, he sends the church to all nations. At the beginning of his gospel, he paints a picture of the nations coming to Christ. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll take it bit by bit this morning. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there's no question that these uh, these wise men, sometimes called magi, and I'll be referring to them as the magi throughout our remarks today, they're, they're without a doubt the most mysterious players in the Christmas narratives. Uh, <clears throat> there's more that we don't know about them, of course, than what we do know about them. 
For example, we don't know their names, even though some Christian traditions have ascribed names to them. The fact of the matter is that's mere conjecture. The Bible does not name them individually, and so we don't really know what their names are. Uh, nor do we know how many of them that there actually were. And again, thanks to the traditional carols, uh, we have sung traditionally about how many of these wise men, three of them. But the Bible doesn't say that there were three of them. I think probably historically we've come to a number of three because we know that they gave three gifts to Jesus. But we really don't know if there were three of these magi or if there were 33 of the magi. Personally, I think there were probably more than three. They caused a lot of ruckus when they came into Jerusalem. And so I think that they had a caravan. I think there were a number of these magi, and I think that they had servants with them who were attending to their needs, and they were riding on animals, and I think they caused a tremendous stir not only because of who they were and where they came from, but because there was probably a large retinue or large contingent of them that came into Jerusalem. Now, what we do know about them is that they came from the east, which means that they couldn't have been following a star that had risen in the east. They're coming from east to west, which meant that the light that they were following was in what part of the sky? The western sky, not the eastern sky. That's a mistranslation in your King James Bibles. The Bible simply says that the star rose, not that it rose in the east. And yet we get that from the first Noel, the Christmas carol. They look it up and saw a star rising in the east beyond them far. No, they looked up and they saw a light in the west. And they began to move from east to west because the Bible makes it very clear that these were eastern people, probably from ancient Babylon or Persia. Magi, these wise men, were very well-respected men, powerful. They were not kings, so the song, We Three Kings, didn't get it right. They were not kings. These were advisors to kings. These were men who served kings. They were skilled in astronomy, skilled in astrology, those two concepts closely tied together in the ancient world. They were pagans. They probably, like their ancient ancestor Abraham, probably worshipped the moon and the astronomical bodies. They were into sorcery. They were into things like the interpretation of dreams. And so they were associated with the magical arts. And the word magi, which is the biblical word for these wise men, is the very word we get our English word magician from. So they were well-studied. They were well-read. But they were pagans. And they served pagan kings. They studied the stars, and they certainly believed that you could learn a lot from the study of the stars, somehow religiously or magically. They believed that the stars communicated in some way, which probably explains why God used a star or some kind of light to draw them to the newborn Christ child. I would imagine God probably thought these guys are looking into the sky all the time. Let's give them something to really talk about. Amen. And so that's what he does. He arranges the sky. Isn't it amazing that God always moves down to our level in order to draw us to him? The Bible says no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. And that's what God in his sovereignty is doing. Why these pagan, oriental, magician, sorcerer, influencers? I don't know. You'll have to ask God. But God in his sovereignty is bringing representatives of the nation 
to the newborn Messiah, and he arranges the night sky in a brilliant way with a star to draw them to the light of the world, or at least some form of light in the sky, something star-like. I wouldn't get too caught up in what this was exactly. Sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. Can I have an amen? It may have been a star. Some have said it was a comet. Some have said it was a convergence of planets that made it stand out in the night sky. All of that is conjecture. Personally, if you're asking your pastor, I think it's a supernatural light. I think that God just put a big light in the sky. I don't think anybody could see it but these magi, to be honest with you. I think they saw it, and they were guided by it, whether it was out every night or periodically along the way, such that they just had to trust what they were following. I don't know. But these were people who believed that those lights provided communicative guidance. And what we do know is that God was using that light to draw them to the Savior. And what makes them truly wise is that they were smart enough to follow the light. Now, obviously, God had given them more than just the light in the sky. You say, well, how do you know that? Because the first thing they do when they get into Jerusalem is start asking around, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? So they know more than that there was just an unusual light in the sky. God had obviously been speaking to them supernaturally in some way. So between God's specific revelation to them in ways that Matthew doesn't expound fully, and then what they probably knew about the Jewish Bible, about the Hebrew Old Testament as we know it. And remember, they would have known something about the Old Testament Those of you that have read your Old Testament know that there was a period in ancient Israel's history when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, 586 B.C., and many of those Jews were carted off into what was known as the exile, and they were taken. Men like Daniel, the prophet Daniel, was an exilic Jew. He was carted away along with thousands of his countrymen, away from his ancestral home in ancient Israel, Palestine, to faraway Babylon. And a new culture, a Jewish culture, actually started there. And so these magi would have been familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures from all of those centuries of Jewish existence in Babylon, in Persia. They would have been influenced by men like Daniel. I would imagine when these magi got into Jerusalem, if somebody had walked up to them and said, hey, do you remember Daniel from the Old Testament? We know he went to Babylon. They would have known exactly who you were talking about. So these men had some knowledge of the Hebrew Bible. I'm convinced of it. And yet at the same time, God was moving in their lives supernaturally. And so between those two things, they knew their purpose. They were trying to find a different kind of child that had been born. They knew that this child was unique and that he had been born king of the Jews in fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. And likely when they came rolling into town, man, have you all ever seen Westerns when a big party of hombres came running into a small town on their horses and everybody stops and just looks at them? And that's probably what happens here. And I'm sure, certainly we know, That when they did, news of their arrival reached all the way to court. 
to the presiding ruler of the district of Palestine, a man who was known as Herod the Great. Now, all of that is the introduction to our message today. Somebody say amen. And what I want to do as we begin our descent from 30,000 feet this morning is I want to give you an application of the message from the Scriptures because what we want to look at this morning and all of that I just said kind of forms the backdrop of the direct application of this message. Three very distinct responses to King Jesus, responses that still are observed today among all kinds of people every time they're confronted with Jesus Christ. You already look at the three say amen this morning. First of all, I want you to notice that some greet Jesus with anger. Y'all ever known anybody when you mention the name Jesus, they get all ticked off? Oh, that still happens today, doesn't it? Some people don't want to hear the name Jesus. Some people don't want to talk about Jesus. Some people don't want to uh, entertain the idea of a sovereign being who wants control over their life. That happened when the Magi came into Jerusalem. Notice in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was what? Say it out loud. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, that's not surprising. Herod was a, a different kind of, a very paranoid man who tended to see just about everything as a threat, potentially. By the time Jesus was born, Herod had been on the throne there in Palestine for over 30 years. He'd been appointed there by the Roman Senate in conjunction with the emperor of Rome, who'd given him the title King of Judea. And over time, Herod, even though he wasn't a Jew, he was actually an, uh, an Edomite Arab, but even though he wasn't a Jew, because of where he ruled, the district of Palestine and Galilee, he was given the acronym King of the Jews. And now all of a sudden, a coterie has come into town, and they're asking, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Herod would have heard that and thought, wait a minute, that would be me, and I was born a long time ago. What you talking about? King born king of the Jews. And so he was significantly threatened by what he was hearing from the streets in Jerusalem. And you can imagine as these significant eastern court officials come into town, Herod was not happy with what he'd heard. Now Herod had been a productive king. He was a builder king. The temple that existed in Jerusalem at that time was overseen by Herod the Great. Uh, how many of you have been to Masada or have heard about Masada, the old ancient fortress near the Dead Sea? Herod was the one that built. The, I've been there with Ladon Boyd at the top of that thing. Herod the Great was the one that constructed the fortress Masada. So he was a great builder king, did a lot of good things in that region. But the reality is he was as bloodthirsty a guy as ever dotted the map. His wife crossed him one time, off with her head. Three of his sons were put to death by the sword by the order of their father, Herod the Great. So anytime he felt threatened, it was a bad deal. And we know it's going to get even worse because when he finds out where Jesus is ultimately, he orders all of these baby boys two years and under to be put to death by the sword. So his first response is to remove this potential rival threat. Pick up in verse 7 with me. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what, the, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring him 
to me also. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Can't you picture old Herod saying that with a smile on his face and his gold tooth sparkling in the light? He didn't have any intention of worshiping him. We all know what he was going to do once he found out what was going on. That was the last thing the old king wanted to do. And the thing about it is not only was Herod nervous, the Bible says all of Jerusalem was troubled right along with him. You know why the whole city was troubled? I mean, word was getting around fast. That's how we know all of them were Baptists back in those days. Amen? And the word was just moving at breakneck speed. And one of the reasons that we know that Jerusalem was troubled is because they'd seen Herod get mad before. You know, he's like the crazy uncle that when he goes off at the Christmas party, everybody goes to their own room in the house and shuts the door behind them because they know what's getting ready to happen is not going to be pretty. Now, as then, you mention the name Jesus Christ to certain people individually in certain quarters, and they'll react the same way. They'll react with a troubled spirit. They'll react with an anxious spirit. They'll react and respond angrily with hostility. And you know why that happens? Because to them, Jesus is a threat. It's no different now as then. He's just a threat in a different kind of way. A threat to what? To my freedom. Jesus is a threat to my movement. Jesus is a threat to my agenda. Jesus is a threat to the way that I want to live my life. And mark this down. Most people who turn away from Jesus and reject Jesus or stiff-arm Jesus, they do so not because they're not eager for eternal life, not because they don't find heaven to be an appealing concept. No, they turn away from Jesus because following Jesus is threatening to them. I mean, anybody that I've got to surrender my life to, man, that becomes a threat. I've got to bow to Jesus as Lord. That signifies a loss of control, loss of personal authority. But Jesus will remind us at the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, not to you. And that's threatening. It's troublesome. It's why the rich young ruler went away from Jesus sad. It's why the Pharisees conspired to put Jesus to death. It's why people are provoked to anger at the name of Christ today. The Romans had no king but Caesar. Herod had no king but himself. And most people today are no different. They'd rather worship either the world or themselves as to surrender their life to a brand new king. But Jesus demands loyalty. And he wants you to see him not as a threat, but as a friend. Someone who knows better about the direction of your life than anybody in the world or even yourself. So be very careful that your first response to Jesus is not a hostile response. Many people have that. They become angry 
And their first response to Jesus is to put him away. Second thing I want you to notice is that some greet Jesus with apathy. Some with hostility and anger, others with apathy. In other words, indifference, carelessness. Herod, who'd been around the Jewish people for most of his life, obviously knew very little, if anything, about biblical prophecy. Because as he was playing a game of Bible trivia, he could not remember where the Messiah of the Jews was to be born. And uh, we know that because the first thing that Herod does is he calls in experts. He calls in the briefcase carriers into court because he wants to question them about the report concerning these visitors from the east. Look at verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Now, there are two groups of people that he calls in. One are the chief priests. Those would have been mostly Sadducees who become more political than religious by the first century. They were the wealthy Jews in Jewish aristocratic leadership. They'd attained lots of property, and they were really cozy with the Roman rulers. And they would have been, there would have been multiple ones of them. The high priest would have probably been there. The captain of the temple would have probably been there. The temple treasurer would have probably been there. These are the chief priests. And then there are scribes who were also there, experts in the Jewish law. These were the Pharisees. They were the real sticklers for the detail of the law. And so he's got this whole contingent there of Jewish religious leaders, and he questions them as to what the Scripture said about the birthplace of the Messiah that was to be born. Now, they had this done in about 10 seconds. I mean, this didn't take long at all. And I, I can imagine, I called a carpenter over my house one time, and I had a pretty simple job, but it was, it was beyond my ability. And he got there, and he looked at what I wanted him to do, and his first question was, is this all you got for me, preacher? And that's probably what the scribes were saying. Is this, is this what you got? You called us here in the middle of the night for this? And they made it very clear, well, he's five or six miles down the road, Bethlehem of Judea. That's where the Messiah is supposed to be born. So they got the information, but here's what's amazing. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Here's what's really amazing, that these Jewish scholars who knew all the details about the birth of their coming king did absolutely nothing about it when they were confronted with the reality that there actually might be a Messiah born five or six miles down the road. They give their king or the king of the region their report. They explain the scripture to him. Then they close their briefcases, pick them up, turn around, and walk right out the door and do absolutely nothing about it. They're not even curious as to why all the hubbub in terms of why we've got this huge coterie of people looking for the one who was to be born king of the Jews. They don't get excited they don't rejoice. They don't go up to the Magi and say, look, we don't particularly care for you guys, but we'd like to kind of travel along behind just to see whatever it is you're looking for. There's none of that. They don't even want to investigate the possibility. They don't seem remotely interested in Jesus at all. 
They're like a lot of people who profess to know the truth. Here's the thing. They were satisfied to show off their biblical knowledge. They were satisfied to quote a little scripture and then turn around and go home and totally miss the, the Savior. Now, does that ever happen in church? Show up, show off your biblical knowledge, leave totally unchanged. But information without transformation always leads to stagnation. And this is another example of why religion can mess you up. Religion devoid of spiritual power can actually act as an impediment to knowing God's plan for your life. Because it, it gives you a false confidence. You think all you need is a little knowledge. You think all you need is to come to a service. You think all you need is to go through some religious ritual. But all in the world that can do, apart from the Spirit of God at work in your life, is just blind you to your true need which is repentance of sin and the gift of forgiveness and a personal relationship with the one who was born king of the Jews. These religious leaders or these religious leaders served Herod, but they really didn't serve the Lord. They knew the truth with their minds, but they rejected the truth with their hearts. And there are many who still do that today. This is where the Magi show us the right way to the Savior. Some greet Jesus with anger. Others greet Jesus with apathy. But then there are some who greet Jesus with adoration. True and genuine worship. The priests and the scribes had better information than the Magi did. The priests and the scribes were more accurate in their understanding <clears throat> of scriptural events than the Magi were. But these were wise men. What made them wise? They were wise not because of what they'd studied. They were wise because they acted on what they did know from the Spirit of God about Jesus Christ. They followed the spiritual leading of their hearts, and it took them right to Jesus. I've told you before, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will what? Say it out loud. He will direct your path. The Bible does not say trust in the Lord with all your head. The religious leaders of the Jews had a trust that was all head. But the Bible says trust in the Lord with all your heart. And that's what the Magi were doing. They didn't know a whole lot, but they were following the Spirit of God with their heart. And guess what happened? He took them right to Jesus, and it changed their life. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, the Magi went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, 
they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Man, here comes that light again in the sky, which implies that it was periodic. It kind of came and went according to the sovereign leading of the Lord. And about the time they got this information that Bethlehem was to where, where they were supposed to go, one looked at the other, who looked at the other, who looked at the other and said, Bethlehem, we don't know anything about Bethlehem. Oh, there's a light. It's back. It must be that way. And they went on the little short five or six mile journey to the 2,000 foot elevation of Bethlehem. And there was that light standing right over the house where the Joseph family was now living. Mark it down. Jesus is no longer a little baby. Your nativity scenes may not be accurate here if you have wise men in them and Jesus is still in the manger. No, Jesus was probably somewhere between one and two years old by this time, several months. He's a toddler by now, probably stuttering, stammering around the house. No longer a baby. They've gotten out of that cold, dark, dank, musty cave stable. And the Bible says they're now in a house, a more appropriate residence for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But what's remarkable to me anyway is the response of these pagan Gentiles to Jesus. I just love what it says here uh, up in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Can I just say this morning, I personally think that's one of the miraculous, marvelous sentences of the whole Bible. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, here's the thing. If Matthew had simply said, when they saw the star, they rejoiced, we would get it. We would get that they had happy feet, right? But he doesn't just say, when they saw the star, they rejoiced. I mean, even if he had gone a little bit further and said when they saw the star, they rejoiced with joy. Well, that's kind of bound up in the word rejoice, and so we get that that would be an extra emphasis. But he doesn't just say they rejoiced with joy. He goes a third step further. And if he were to say they rejoiced with great joy, okay, now we really get it. Now you're really going over the top. But he doesn't even say that. He just piles superlative onto superlative onto superlative onto superlative. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And that's the closest the Bible ever comes to saying supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's just a remarkable statement that describes... The joy. <laughs> That's unspeakable and full of glory. You're talking about exuberant worship. I'm not talking about show up, go through the motions, sing with your arms folded, put your hands in your pocket kind of worship. That's not what we're talking about. When they saw the star, 
they rejoiced with an inexpressible joy at the glory. Can I just say this morning, I think God really does care about our attitude in worship. I really believe it. I mean, you read through the prophets of the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, and he says, here's the deal. From Isaiah chapter 1, if all you're doing is going through the, I hate your religious feasts. That's what God said. Man, if God uses the word hate, it's bad. I despise your religious feasts because while you profess me with your lips, your hearts are far from me. Man, attitude is everything when it comes to worship. I mean, I hate to even ask, have we rejoiced with exceeding great joy this morning? Most preachers would take their congregation just rejoicing or rejoicing with joy. But God wants us to worship him like these guys did, Gentile pagans who knew they were in the presence of holiness and approached their Savior with fear and trembling. In fact, these men who knew only the barest facts concerning Jesus, how they fell down on their face when they had entered that house and they gazed on the glory of the newborn king. And here's how you know it, because their genuineness in worship was reflected by the costliness of their sacrifice. How do we know they worshiped? They gave an offering, which is one way that you can tell the level of joy in your life. Now, I remind you, these guys had already traveled hundreds of miles, maybe more than a thousand miles, because we don't really know where they came from, but it was probably a journey of about a thousand miles, unbelievably long back in that period of the first century. And their first response as an act of worship after making that incredibly distant trip is to offer these over-the-top extravagant gifts to the king. I really believe that when Joseph and his family had to hightail it away when Herod got really mad and they had to leave and go to Egypt, which is what happens next, these gifts are how they lived for the next several years in Egypt. These guys, through their faithfulness, financed their life when they were on the run for the king. And that's true worship. True worship always demands a sacrificial response to the kingship of our Savior. The Magi gave themselves to Christ, but then they gave their possessions to Christ, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Some have ascribed symbolism to each of the gift, and I think that's appropriate. I don't know if the Magi had that in mind when they were offering it. They just gave their best. But there was gold, which is always a symbol of royalty. So the gold is kind of a picture of the royalty of Christ. Frankincense is an incense that's used in the worship of God. It was used in the temple in the worship of God. And so frankincense is kind of the picture of the deity of Jesus Christ. He's God in the flesh. And then myrrh, of course, is an ointment. It's a perfume that's used in anointings and burial preparations. And it's interesting, at the end of the gospel, Jesus would be, have his body anointed and myrrh would be one of the anointing spices that was used to prepare the body of our Lord for his burial. And so myrrh represents the humanity 
the sacrifice of the king for the people. So the gifts point symbolically to the fact that Jesus is our king and that Jesus is our God and that Jesus is our sacrifice. But what's important to notice is that true worship is marked by a costly response. We give to Jesus, not because, not, because, not because we want Jesus to make us rich. Did you hear me say amen? But we give to Jesus to demonstrate that our money and our possessions are not our true treasure. He's our treasure. He's our treasure. And when you take what the world calls treasures and you release them to the one who is truly master of your life, you show that he is my greatest treasure, that he is my sovereign, that he is my master, and my money is certainly not. I trust my God more than I trust my things. And that's why giving is always a demonstrable act of the genuine worship and the genuine place of Jesus Christ in your life. Now, let me ask you a question. How have you greeted Christ the King? Some greet him with hostility. Some will greet him with careless indifference, an apathy. The Magi remind us not only that the bumper sticker is right, wise men and women still seek him, but they also remind us that the only right response to Jesus is what they demonstrated. Joyful, extravagant, sacrificial worship. And when you respond to Jesus in that kind of way, he'll change your life and give you a future and a hope now and for all eternity in the kingdom of heaven. Only Jesus has the power to change your life. How will you greet him today and in the year ahead? That's the question as we bow our heads in prayer.